The title of today's sermon is The Burial of Jesus. John chapter 19, I'll begin reading in verse 38 and we'll finish in verse 42. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, there they laid Jesus there. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Father, we thank you for this opportunity you've given us today. And as we so often do, we again ask that you would open our eyes to see and our hearts to believe wonderful things that you reveal about yourself uh, from your word. We ask it in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Happy Mother's Day. With a greeting like that, what, what comes to your mind with that statement? Pastor Jordan and I didn't talk beforehand, uh, but in many ways the questions I have fall in line with some of the statements he made at the very beginning. What, what comes to your mind with a greeting such as that? For some of us here, there's that, the thought of Mother's Day is just sheer joy. But there are some in the room where joy might not be what immediately comes to mind. Some of us here have wonderful moms. Or you're married and you know how great a mother that your wife is to your children. Kids in this room, God has been gracious to you in giving you godly mothers. Even if you don't think so. We're all recipients of the godliness in motherhood that exudes from the women in this church. So for me, the thought of motherhood springs happiness and thankfulness. God is kind to me. I was raised by a godly mother. I'm married to a godly spouse. Uh, I don't think there's anyone better out there than April. And I, I hope all you husbands in the room can hear that and you can both rejoice with me in a statement like that and then say about your own spite, your own spouse, that you don't think there's any better mother out there than the one that you married. We ought to endeavor to often remind our children of what a gift godly motherhood is to kids. And we ought to do that with each other's families as well. One of the greater joys I have as a pastor is uh, when I remember and recall to do so and I'm in your home is to look at your children and say, man, you ought to thank God for the mom and dad that he has given you. I was also been blessed with a, uh, a wonderful, godly mother-in-law, and I have one precious daughter who is well on her way to being a godly woman. But there's also a sting that can come from motherhood, because some of us here may not have been raised by a godly mother. Some had an absent mother. Uh, those of you here at this church, you know what our family's been walking through uh, in the last few months. So 
today's going to be a tough day for my brother-in-law and two nephews as they wake up uh, as a reminder of what's lost, their, the first Mother's Day without a, without a wife and without a mother. Words and experiences are, 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 are words and experiences are very pa powerful. Like the day that my sister passed away, uh, just three months ago, um, it was it was that day. And my brother and I were about to meet my brother-in-law in his home as he is, has, was traveling back from Wisconsin. And I walked into Walmart, and the first thing that I noticed at the red box kiosk was a mother and her child picking out a movie. And then about 30 seconds later, I'm walking near the apparel and I happen to look over and then there's uh, like, I guess in the, in the lady section, a shirt that just says, um, you know, all about that mom life. And on most occasions, I would look at that and just sort of kind of roll my eyes and snicker a little bit and just think, man, like there's really, a, 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 there's really people who wear that kind of stuff. But on this particular day, I, I was gripped by those things. Most of the time, most of the time I, I wouldn't pay any attention at all. And some of you, a day like today, you're, you're doting over your children, the very human beings who made you a mom. Some of you are also dealing afresh with the children that you lost. Some of you are experiencing challenges in motherhood because you're doing it primarily by yourself. Some of you are experiencing motherhood through adoption either as a child who is adopted or as a mother who has or is anticipating adoption. And we are each aware of the assault on biblical womanhood and motherhood in our country that is so antagonistically against preserving the life in the womb. To do so, God's word is being disregarded, in many ways desecrated. His creation order is obsolete. Biology is denied. Language rearranged in order to preserve the right to end life. Sadly, these are the noetic effects of sin, of which all we can say many times is, dear God, have mercy. So the point that I'm attempting to make in this introduction is that even on a celebratory day like today, our experiences and our understanding of motherhood will inform what we think of the events of the day. Now, Consider the text we just read. It's in the middle of a historical chain of events. For those in the present day, the death of Jesus brings about a myriad of experiences ranging for some who are grieving, others who are confused, and there are some who are present that are just happy and thankful that he's dead. If you ask me now, what are my immediate thoughts on the death of Christ and I will speak to you primarily of the joy, of the happiness, the, the thankfulness that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. In all likelihood, I'm not going to immediately recall the agony of his crucifixion, nor even what it would have been like for a present-day follower to see him die and then see his lifeless body be taken down and buried. But these are the ones we are considering today. And more importantly, the significance of the body and burial of Jesus is that which give rise to eternal hope in Christ. Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So what we've been doing here for the last several weeks is to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Bible. And the text we have today slows things down just a bit. It's been quite an active week leading up to the crucifixion. To give a brief synopsis, this is, these are some of the things that have just happened in the previous days. Jesus arrived in Bethany. He was uh, then entered into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, where they were waving palm trees and singing Hosanna in the highest. Jesus curses the fig tree and cleanses the temple. He teaches and counters controversial discussions with Jewish leaders. He's being secretly plotted against by one of his supposed followers. He eats a final meal with his disciples. He's betrayed. He's arrested. He's subjected to numerous trials. Pilate doesn't believe he's guilty, yet he succumbs to the crowd for him to be crucified. His disciples fall asleep while he's praying. Peter denies him. He's beaten. He's flogged. He's forced to carry his own cross. He's mercilessly mocked and spat upon. He is crucified on a cross where he gives up his spirit and dies. That's a lot. And as it were, based on the events leading up to the burial of Jesus, this, this moment in the narrative appears to be relatively quiet. Jesus is dead. And there seems to be a collective hush as followers of Jesus grieve and as the Jews and Romans celebrate. So let's look a bit closely at who John mentions in these five verses. First of all is Joseph of Arimathea. So John describes him as a secret follower of Jesus. He feared the Jews. To learn a bit more about Joseph, we can turn to Luke's description who added that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a good and righteous man waiting for the kingdom of God. Matthew adds to Joseph's resume that he is a disciple of Jesus. That Jesus, or excuse me, that Joseph had not consented to the plan of the Sanhedrin's for Jesus to be handed over and delivered. So he was a secret, a hidden. He was keeping concealed that he was a follower of Jesus. Up to the point of asking for the body of Jesus, he was an anonymous follower of Christ. And it's important maybe at this point to note that what was prophesied about Jesus in Isaiah 53 is being fulfilled, that his grave, which was Joseph's, was assigned with wicked men, yet he was, a, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So it was known that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, and it was his grave that he loaned out to Jesus. Well, he was not alone. There was another follower that were there, Nicodemus, who came with Joseph. We, we learn of him in John chapter 3. He came secretly to Jesus by night. And he's there, and he has with him uh, somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds of spices in order to place on the body. So here we have two men aware of Jesus, 
but distance in some ways. Yet now they are intricately involved in the preparation and care of the body of Jesus. So we've talked about a couple of people who are present. Now let's answer the question of who is not there. Where are the disciples? Where are the leaven, the followers, the ones who are with him? We don't really know. It's usually, usually customary, or usually the case is that when a person dies, those who's closest to him are going to be the ones that gather together to prepare the body to make the arrangements. Usually that's what happens uh, when there's going to be a funeral. It's the, it's the people who are closest to the person who's passed away. But here, it's Joseph and Nicodemus. One who asks for the body and the other one to prepare the body. We know that there was some suspicion that some of the followers might take away the body of Jesus. And we can read elsewhere that a large stone uh, was commissioned to be cut and to be sealed with a guard placed there so that nobody could enter into that tomb, take the body away, and then cause an uproar because uh, of, of, the, of the claims that Jesus would rise again on the third day. So was this part of God's providence for none of the disciples to be present in order to remove that possibility. We don't, we don't know. The text doesn't answer that question, but we ought, to, we ought to find it wonderfully remarkable that the two people who were there, one was fearful, one was ashamed. Then we have Pilate, Roman governor. He's the one who found no fault, but still ordered the crucifixion. He granted permission for Jesus' body to be handed over to Joseph and Nicodemus. And I, I, I just, again, it's fascinating. He, they, you know, Joseph asks Pilate for permission to have the body. Pilate grants permission for him to have the body. But you recall, or maybe you recall that even earlier in this chapter, the exchange between Jesus and Pilate, where Pilate says to him, do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. So, quite a statement to make to the governor, but Jesus knew who the real eternal king is. And earlier in the presence of the Jews and some disciples, Jesus said in John chapter 10, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So that's the proper biblical order that's there. And then we have the body of Jesus, which we'll say more about later. But before we consider the significance of Jesus' body and burial, let's make a couple of more observations. The spices that were there to prepare the body. Myrrh and aloes. These aloes were a powdered aromatic sandalwood used for perfuming bedding or cloths. It would help absorb the odor and then slowly, uh, or help and slow down the body decomposing. 
The body was wrapped in linen, linen strips, and the spices would be sprinkled in between the folds of these strips. And we look at the amount and, and consider that, and that things like, it seems like that's an ex- excessive amount, but really it's not. It's not an outlandish amount for these two reasons. Nicodemus may have been thinking about the possibility of covering the entire body of Jesus with the spices. Secondly, perhaps more importantly, it was customary for a lot of spices to be used with a person of prominence. Leon Morris ties a potential connection on the amount that Nicodemus brought to Jesus' kingship. Listen with me to Psalm 45, verse 8. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. So the Jews did not believe in embalming, so all the eternal organs would remain intact. And the fragrances were there in order to handle the odor. Secondly, the tomb was in a garden. This is a wonderful theme in Scripture. Sin began in a garden, and the first Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden as a result. Romans chapter 5, verse 14 identifies Adam as a type of him who was to come, which is a very clear and direct reference to Jesus Christ. Sin was atoned for in a garden, and the second and better Adam, Jesus resulting in what Paul further describes in Romans chapter 5 as doing so for our justification, our righteousness, grace, and life. Now, another observation is just the burial. The way a body is prepared for burial was important to the Jews. Pilate granting permission for Joseph to receive Jesus' body was a break from normal Roman protocol. They didn't often release a body, especially a body for a person that they uh, believed was in um, uh, what, what was in had done the crime of sedition. So this was the crime that Jesus was accused of. So normally the body would be handed over to the next of kin, but Jesus's brothers were nowhere to be found. And even if they were near, it wouldn't have been wise for them to approach Pilate to ask for it. Pilate could have easily let the body be exposed. Oftentimes they would do that. They would just leave it up there until the vultures pretty much devoured all of the flesh, and they would do so as a warning. They would do so as a message to say, you commit sedition, and you're next. But they didn't do that. Joseph, member of the Sanhedrin, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate could have left him there, but he granted the release. Why? Some have noted that it it likely meant that Pilate didn't believe that Jesus was guilty of sedition and therefore did not deserve to die on the cross. But that's not enough. Even even, even if that were true, you can't, can't pay penance. You can't do appeasement to God, even in a setting such as that, to try to make things right. Then there's a day of preparation. This would take place on Friday. In Jewish law, a dead body was to remain, uh, uh, was not to remain all night on the tree. You were to bury the body that day. 
And this is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. We heard a little bit about this a few weeks ago, that his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile, defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So because the next day was the Sabbath, and one of the important feasts, the Jews wanted to get Jesus off the cross and buried quickly. Last week we looked at that. They, break, they broke the legs of the other two criminals on the cross. So leaving the body would break the law by defiling the land. And again, that's not the, that, that's not the protocol of the Romans. They would leave the bodies exposed on the cross as a warning to others who committed similar sins. So that's a little bit about who's present, a little bit about some of the things that we observe. Now let us consider what does Jesus want us to, or excuse, what does John want us to learn? I believe there are several things that he's aiming at. And the first is this Jesus is dead. He really died on the cross. Why, why include the details of the body of Jesus being handed over to Joseph? Well, it confirmed among all the parties present that Jesus is dead. Pilate's the governor. He saw the crucifixion. It would have been a centurion guard who was responsible to assure that the handling of the body uh, was done so properly. That Joseph was no longer a secret follower of Jesus and that Nicodemus was no longer ashamed to be associated with him. These are some of the things that John invites us into in the reality that Jesus really did die on the cross. Secondly, what we've alluded to, now we'll spend more time looking at, is the body. It's mentioned at least three times here. The, the, the phrase, the body, handed over, taken, prepared. In, in the incarnation, God the Son took on human flesh. He has a body just as we do. He lived on earth just as we do. He experienced bodily limitations just as we do. He was tired. He was hungry. He had emotions just as we do. He was, uh, at times, he, he was angry in the, in, the, in the temple. He expressed sorrow, uh, burden over the lack of repentance of Jerusalem. He was perfect in his humanity. And even though we're going to look more closely next week at the resurrection of Jesus, it's worth mentioning concerning this text that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose with a new imperishable, imperishable body. As such, this will serve as a pattern for, <coughs> excuse me, our redeemed bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Practically speaking, we know that God has created us in his own image. And as such, we, have, uh, we are given embodied souls. We have a body and a soul. Ezekiel reminds us that we have a soul that will never die. Paul reminds us that our body is wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day as we look upon Jesus. 
We are encouraged to look not on the external things, but to look on the eternal things. When David was being selected as a king, it was uh, pointed out that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Paul, again, in 1 Timothy, says discipline, uh, like bodily discipline has some benefit, but you're to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness because godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This body, this shell will one day cease to exist. And that's been a helpful, uh, it's been a, a helpful thing to, to shepherd your soul and your heart through as well as children when you come upon or, or, or usually at a viewing when you see the body of someone who's dead. You look at them. That's not the same person. There's no, there's no life. He cease to exist. The body will one day cease to exist, but the soul remains. There's life. And as we saw moments ago, we are raised with him and will receive an imperishable body. What else is John inviting us to see? That his death helps embolden faith in timid followers. Joseph was fearful. Nicodemus felt shame. Remember, he was a secret follower. Didn't want to be known. Nicodemus came to him at night. And yet, the timing of these two men coming forward at this point, he's, he's dead. Like, they could continue going on in their secrecy. Like, what, what do they have to gain publicly now by coming forward? Nothing. They have more to lose. Yet when the 11 disciples left, these are the two who came forward to prepare his body. So even though this may be a minor note, it's a critical one nonetheless. Fear gives way to faith. Shame gives way to his presence, his nearness. Followers of Jesus are known people. They neither seek to hide from God, nor do they seek to live anonymously in this world. And here's a wonderful reality. We, you and I have all the help we need in knowing how we ought to live in Christian, how, how we ought to live as Christians and how we ought to relate to one another. They're called the one another passages. And most of the time, we, we view these one another passages as one-sided. We think, which is, which is correct, how can I pray for you? How can I love you? How can I help carry your burdens? But consider, the flip, consider flipping the question to ask this, how can I help you help me? You following me here? We're good with like, how can I pray for you? How can I carry your burdens? How can I love you? But there's two sides to that. We can be known by inviting others. This is, this is where I'm burdened. This is how you can pray for me. Here are ways that you can love me. That's a, that's a way to invite that kind of one another care into our own soul and not always put the pressure on somebody else to, to, to be what they're not. The Holy Spirit can't unlock the keys of the heart and always know what's going on with you. So that's what the 
death, burial, and that's one of the fruits of the death, burial, and resurrection. Faith. Presence of the Lord. Resolved in our heart to follow him. Another thing that John is inviting us into is that the reality is not as quiet as it seems. I gave you a whistle-stop tour earlier of, of all the things that have been happening in this week. This, the sermons in the past couple of weeks have touched on a lot of this activity. Courts, imprisonment, trials, horrid, gruesome details connected with the crucifixion. It's been active. But here, there's the seemingly silent reality of death. A quietness, a hush. But are things as quiet as they seem? I'd answer that question with no. Because God is still active. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. Even in the darkest of days and moments of history, God remains on the throne. God was not plotting a counter move to the crucifixion and burial of his son. This was all a part of his preordained plan. Humanly speaking, there will never be a more criminal, unjust act than what Jesus suffered. And yet, God glorified himself by killing his own son. By pouring out all his wrath upon the sinless, suffering sacrifice of Jesus. Peter picks this precious, up. P- Peter picks this precious reality up in this way. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And hear this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. So there is a pervasive deafening silence that's going on in verses 38 through 42. So what do you do in their silence? What's your, what's your thoughts when there's quietness or when it appears that there are no answers to your godly pleas to the Lord? We can reassure our soul with the promises of God that he's not silent. His word is living. His word is active. We can look back to his death and burial. We can look back to these five verses to be reminded that God is actively at work on behalf of his glory and for the good of his people. He's always working toward those ends. He did not leave them as orphans. Jesus will not leave his people as orphans in a sin-torn world. What else is in John inviting us in to see? Death, darkness, they give way to light, life, hope, and joy. Again, let's look at present day. Not here, but then. There's immense sadness. No one close to Jesus is going back to the regular routine. For them, it's marked with fear, with confusion, with bewilderment, with grief. Also present day, there's th- those who are most antagonistic toward Jesus, and there's a collective sigh of relief for them. He's dead. It's over. It's done. They can finally put to rest each and every way that, that Jesus was against Caesar, that he was against religiosity. He showed that he was not the political and earthly king that some sought him to be. That's not why he came. 
We live present day in an already not yet period. His death and resurrection have secured our standing and position in him. An inheritance which is imperishable, unfaded, protected, kept, secured from God. This awaits us. But notice, I I, I say the word awaits. It's ours in Christ. Christ has to return again. And he will do so in bodily form. Joy and pleasure will soon have an eternal flip. Where those who find joy in self receive destruction. And those who are in Christ will enter into the joy of their master. When Christ returns and there is a final judgment, all those who sought joy and pleasure in this world will in turn receive wrath. Psalm chapter 17, 14 describes the wicked in these ways. They're men of the world. Their portion is in this life. Their belly is filled with the treasure of the Lord. This recognition that it's God who's given it, and they, they filled their belly with it, but not in a way that honors God. They're satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. Joy and pleasure in the world and worldly things will one day be revealed as what they really are, death and darkness. The days in the tomb are the only days in all of eternity where the lived experience was one of uncertainty. We know Jesus had been preparing them all along. But on this day, these verses, these five verses here, that day, there was grief, sadness, and uncertainty. The resurrection of Jesus removed that uncertainty. This is one of the fruits of the death, burial, and resurrection. Because sin is atoned for in Christ, uncertainty gives way to hope. Darkness gives way to light. Death gives way to life. Christ's death did this to Joseph and Nicodemus. Christ's resurrection did this to his disciples and therefore ought to be our present day hope. But what do I do when it still feels dark? When we still live in the midst of a wicked nation that's intent on opening the door wide open for every avenue of wickedness. We remember that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. And that he was raised according to the scriptures. We remind ourselves that by Christ's doing, we are his. And that we are buried in the likeness of his death, death and raised with him. I have to read to you Romans 6. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we, will also, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. 
Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What a glorious text. A glorious text to just have read. This is hope. This is eternal hope. But I also realize that there's going to be some in this room, even with this powerful passage read, you're going to find it difficult to hope because to you, darkness is an unwanted, pervasive, constant, unwelcomed companion. It's near to you like the air you breathe. And I want to plead with you to think of the resurrection. When the Christian life for you feels as though Jesus is still in the tomb, that he's still dead, will you remind yourself that he's alive and that you are alive with him? Will you think about one day, one day, one day you too will receive an imperishable, glorified, resurrected body where darkness or the effects of living in a sin-fallen world will no longer have any voice or any influence in your life. Earlier, I read to you Psalm 17, 14 that reflects the condition of the wicked. One, one verse later, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. That last phrase, I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we can be satisfied with the likeness of Christ. We can have joy in his presence. We can have comfort from his word. We can take security in his refuge. We can have certainty in his promises and we can long for his bodily return. Chapter nine, excuse me, chapter 19 ends with these four words. They laid Jesus there. But thanks be to God, chapter 19 is not the final word. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That he died for sin. That he served as our sin offering and that you were satisfied with his death on our behalf. Father, we pray that you would uh, continue to work your grace in our heart. We ask it for your glory, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.